Hello, and welcome to the West Meeting Room. On today's episode, I, your host, Sabrina, will be sharing audio that I had collected during my first year working in audio and working at Heart House as a student podcaster. One of my big focuses for this year is to showcase some of the tape that I had collected in those early days, and I'm very excited to be able to do so now. We'll be hearing five separate stories today, a story of love, one of academic expectation, a story of identity, another of being an international student and reconciling multiple cultural contexts, and finally, a story of finding place and community within a large institution. All of these tapes were originally recorded as one-on-one interviews where I interviewed our guests that you'll hear over the next hour. I have cut out almost all of my voice to have the segments be a continuous thought from our guests. That being said, you'll still hear me between stories to contextualize what is coming next. The first segment features a guest who describes their parents' love story, and I'll let them introduce themselves right about now. My name is Soliana. Everyone calls me Soli, so I forget that my full name is Soliana sometimes. I'm from Ethiopia. I'm in first year. I want to be in the Peace, Conflict, and Justice program. Join me in listening to Soli as she talks about a story of love, loss, and love again as she tells us a very heartwarming, coincidental, and ultimately positive tale of her coming to Canada familial story. My parents both lived fairly close to each other and their their siblings knew each other but they kind of didn't for a while. I think their sisters introduced them because they were in the same class as just like friends, and my parents were friends for most of their teen years. Um, When they were about 17, when my mom was about 17, my dad was about 18, almost 19, uh, they started dating. About two years later, a huge political, like, coup d'etat kind of thing happened. Like, things just went badly. Can I swear? Uh, You can swear if you want. Cool. So shit went down. Okay. Political shit went down. There was a dictator that, like, took office. Like, it was this whole thing. In Ethiopia. In Ethiopia. In, at that time. And it was, like, a socialist, like, it was a bad time. And my dad's job at the time, he had, like, a part-time job where he would go to different parts of the country and, uh, teach, kind of. Like, it's... A very specific Ethiopian thing that doesn't really happen here, but he'd go to like different parts of the country and show them like different like tech and how they could use it and he'd come back. So he'd be gone for about a month and he'd come back for a couple of weeks. And when my parents were dating, they didn't tell their parents because that's not a thing that you really talk about in Ethiopian culture, especially when you're that young. It's usually, it's not necessarily arranged, but it is dict not dictated, but planned by your parents. Parents like to play matchmaker and they don't necessarily force you into anything, but they're like, hey, you're ready now. And it's not like, at that age was not when my parents thought, my grandparents thought that my mom was ready to start like seriously dating because you didn't date for pleasure, you dated to get married. So they weren't telling my parents, they weren't telling their parents. And so my dad would be gone for a while and then he'd tell his sister to tell her sister to tell her to meet up. And they'd meet up at like random times and they'd like, they'd see each other for a couple of days before he had to go again. And it was, it went on like that. It was very casual for like a year, I think. And then my dad found out that he was going to be enlisted. And my dad is the oldest son and his mom was a single mother. His, my grandfather on that side passed away when he was very young. So he was basically like the man of the house. And he knew that he couldn't get enlisted in this war because it'd be detrimental for the rest of his family. So my dad decides he's going to flee the country. And and try and get some money to send back home and all that kind of things. 
and he wants to tell my mom because they're dating and he likes her, which I think is really cute. <laughs> so he wants, so he tells his sister to tell her sister to meet on a certain day and he's going to tell her what's going on and the way, a way to contact him and everything before he leaves. But the thing was my mom, for whatever reason, couldn't meet that day. And so it didn't happen. And my dad was like on a deadline. So he just left and didn't tell her. And about six months go by and she doesn't hear anything from him. And it only really starts to concern her like two months in because of his job. So she doesn't really know. And after a while, she realizes that nobody's heard from him for a while. And like his family is keeping it very close to their chest where he's gone. And she can't necessarily go out and ask. But at the same time, my grandfather on my mother's side was a well-known like pol politician. Uh, so at that time, the current dictator in a way, in a power grab was putting those well-known people in prison. So my grandfather gets put in prison and my grandmother goes, this is unsafe. They're going to go after my children next and arranges with family friends to send her children, mostly daughters and one son to different countries separately. I think my mom went with one of her cousins but they forged documents saying that they were going to study in Kenya, like they were on a study visa and got out of the country. They're staying at some sort of like a refugee kind of camp where it wasn't, it's not like refugee camps now when they're literally like made out of like tents. Like it was very much like a building that like they were harboring a bunch of Ethiopian. Little did my mom know, my dad's also in Kenya. And uh, so they see each other and it's a whirlwind of just, what the hell happened in the last like eight months. Um, so they see each other and they live together in Kenya with their respective like family liaisons for a year. And my mom gets sponsored by one of her uncles who has established himself in Canada. So she it, like doesn't want to leave him, but also knows that they both want to be in Canada. So she goes to Canada in, I want to say September of the year. She establishes herself and she finds one of his family members that he hadn't been in contact with for a very long time and gets that family member to sponsor him. And he's there in March of the next year. The minute they get there, I think, <laughs> oh, it wasn't March, it was January. Because in February, on February 14th, my parents elope without knowing that it's Valentine's Day because Valentine's Day isn't a thing in Africa. So my parents' wedding anniversary is Valentine's, Day, Valentine's Day, which is fun. Um, they don't tell anyone that they're married really until like after they do it. And it was kind of like through letters, like they kind of just sent letters across the country. And like my entire family was very support supportive of it. Like my family is very close on both sides. Um, it was an interesting time. And like after that, they both ended up sponsoring their siblings to come here and to the US. And that's where most of my family is now which is fun, but it's always just really interesting to see like, like there were a lot of coincidences that made me and my sister possibilities, which is also really gross to think about, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah. But like, it's, it's, it's strange, barring the whole possibilities, quote unquote. Yeah. It's, it's strange to think how life works in the way that yeah. it does and brings, it, it can sometimes bring the people who really need to be together together, even with the biggest odds against exactly. them. Next is excerpts from a conversation about identity, particularly race and sexuality. My name is Bree. I'm 19 years old and I'm studying English and maybe history. The first year has been interesting. I, I've learned a lot, um, like both from school and just in general life stuff. I think that being an adult is super complicated and that comes with like a lot of unforeseen 
um, events that occur that you don't realize that would occur because you know they don't show you that in 80s movies. My mom is from, well, um, the island of an island state like Antigua and Barbuda, and my dad is from Grenada, which is another island in the Caribbean. So all of my family members and like the descendants of my family members probably will be Caribbean because everyone in my life is from the Caribbean. My dad moved here when he was 16 and my mom moved here when she was six. Like my grandma, my great great grandmother because her great grandmother raised her for a little bit and then my grandma settled everything in Canada. My mom came over and then when she grew up she met my dad and then my dad went to university here. He came here when he was 16 and went to university because he's like crazy smart. Um, and then my mom and my dad got married when they were like 22. Well, when she was 22, he was 25. Um, and he became a permanent resident because she was a permanent resident. And then after they got divorced, uh, he ended up going back to the Caribbean. So like holla at the cool vibes in the islands. When I lived in Toronto, because I moved like to a town when I was like uh, slightly older, when I was like six-ish, like so before then I lived in Toronto, and Toronto's very diverse. So like, I didn't really think about my blackness. I've always been aware of it, just because like, my mom has been very like adamant about being like, black is beautiful, like, and like all of that jazz that arised in the 70s. But um, I didn't really think about it until I came to like a smaller, less diverse place where like there I could count how many kids of color were in my class. And that was weird for me, like coming from a place where like it was a like a very like imaginable Skittles, like there's very well mixed, like changed to like a bowl of like green M&Ms with like three M&Ms thrown in there. Like it's very weird to like change your perception of the world so quickly so like i guess that was the first point that i've noticed that i was like different after the election in america i became very apolitical so i haven't really focused on my blackness i guess as a way to like not think about the deteriorating state of north america but um, I've been very fortunate to know a lot of black students and to like have that base before I got here. Um, and they're very prevalent in the BSA. So like I hear a lot of what's going on in on campus, like in regards to being black, like especially in sciences and engineering, there's like a very prevalent culture of anti-blackness that's going on. And it like really sucks that like they have to experience that and obviously doesn't necessarily mean that I haven't been experiencing like any form of racism like there's microaggressions that happen like on the daily like I met this dude and after two days of knowing him he's like I dated a black girl once and I was like cool thanks for tokenizing me that's awesome um but I think there's just like a lack of representation especially like professors in subjects that aren't necessarily like social sciences or African studies do you ever see a professor who is black just in my experience all of my professors except for in something that's very specific to 
their heritage would my professor not be white so I think like that's a big part of it and also I don't know I just think that students themselves like just a large amount of the students are very white so the, the campus is very white I think that I've always been able to be really proud to be black because of like just the way that I grew up I was really fortunate to be in a family that like already had figured out all of like the internalized racism so like I've always been lucky to be really proud of my heritage and I think that in terms of like I identify as bisexual so in terms of bisexuality I don't generally present very queer people generally assume that I'm straight even after having conversations with them about my like sexual desires I guess towards women people still assume that like oh she's just kidding she's straight um so I find myself having to constantly come out to people like I I've done it I did it today like I've done it like last week and the week before like it's it's a constant like need to come out and I guess I don't need to I could just like be fine with people not necessarily knowing my sexuality but like from coming from a place where my minority status is something to be proud of it's very different when your minority status isn't like seen on you you can't really necessarily like wear that badge of pride as much like I can't just like wear a shirt that says I'm bi every single day of my life and be like yo look at me queer here but um I find that like it's it's easier for people to look past it so people generally just identify you with whatever they they feel most comfortable with and I think that also happens with blackness like I've heard people say to my own face like oh you're you're not really black or forgotten that you're black and it's like differences are things to celebrate not necessarily to hide and I think that in terms of my sexuality it's like a lot easier for people to like put me in a box of um, heteronormativity or heterosexuality because it makes it easier for them and I, I wish that people were more aware of what bisexuality means and the fact that just because I'm not like dating a woman doesn't mean that like I'm only attracted to men which is weird because people are never like oh you're not dating a man you aren't bisexual you're a lesbian they're always like you're not dating a woman doesn't that make you straight so I think that it makes it easy for people to like erase that part of my identity obviously it'd be so much easier to like just not be a minority at certain points like when you're in a job interview because it's like you're way more likely to get a job if you aren't a minority that includes like being a woman um so like there's there's times it would be easy to slip in and out of being a minority but i think that in terms of the way that i am i'd rather deal with the uncomfortableness and like make it so that everybody's kind of on the same playing field even if i'm dealing with that like constantly it makes it easier for like the next minority who walks into the room to be like less ostracized so i'd like i'd rather have both of my minority statuses be visible than to like be able to slip in and out of them because i feel like part of the fact that i love my identity so much is the fact that i'm like I was forced to live with it and figure it out in a world that not isn't necessarily the most accepting of it. So you kind of get your own groove in your own like lane, <laughs> in a, in a sense because you you're like you're forced to. But it's like 
it's a good journey. It's a great journey to like learn to love yourself. And I think that there's a lot of strength and like uniqueness and creativity that comes from minority statuses. And I think that that's something that I wouldn't want to be able to take off. I, I prefer to just take life as it goes and see where things go because I wouldn't have not, I wouldn't have necessarily known where I would be even at the beginning of this year. And I think that if I tried to plan where I'd be, like I would end up in a completely different place, but I wouldn't necessarily know all the things that I know now. So I really enjoy life lessons as they come. And I like to just like take life as it goes. Our next guest discusses academic expectation and how they're navigating that pressure. What does being a student mean to you? I think being a student means becoming a better person, being a better version of myself, and being open to learning about new things, um, being accepting of other people's perspectives, even if I disagree. And are there any like external factors that affect your being a student? So. Are you like the first student in your family? I'm the last person to get a post-secondary education in my family. Like in some ways, people might not understand that that does put pressure on me, but it definitely does. My sister, she was originally pursuing um, a bachelor in science, but then she eventually chose not to do that. And I obviously came here hoping to do that. And I'm, I'm not exactly sure how that's going right now. It's going to take some time for me to figure out if I actually want to do that. But I think because of that, because of what happened with my sister and because of what happened to my other family members in education, it's sort of, it's not necessarily competition. It's just, I want to make my parents proud. I'm trying to study things that I like, but at the same time, I also want to make sure that my parents' hard work didn't go to waste. So it is a lot of pressure. And what would life not pursuing a Bachelor's of Science look to you? Would you go to Bachelor's of Arts? Would you go to college? Would you start working? I feel like I would probably pursue something in the arts. I did want to go to art school, maybe do musical theater, I'm not, so <laughs> there's that. But I also, after graduation, I might want to become a lawyer. So I feel like at some times I would like to study political science or something of the sort rather than life science courses, but I enjoy it, so it's okay. <laughs> and then going back to the larger branch of what being a student means to you, what is your like work-play balance? And do you think it's important to spend more of your time on your work, more time on play and extracurriculars, and what kind of things, if you do things in your free time, what kind of things are important to you and what kind of things do you think students in general should do in their free time? So in people's free time, I would like to think that they spend it doing things that are fun. So if you like singing, sing. If you like painting, paint. Things like that, anything that's not directly related to your schoolwork is something that 
I think is a good thing to do when you have free time. In terms of my work-play balance, I do think working hard is important, but at the same time, I highly value spending time with your friends and having a break from all of the school work and all that stress because it gets a lot harder when you feel alone. And if you do have friends and you surround yourself with that positivity, then I feel like you get more out of the experience of being a university student. And I think it's also like a sensory thing. Like when I'm outside, because I don't wear hats. Like you'll see me in winter, I don't do hats. I like, I tried because I was like, I'm bald now, I'll need it's a hat. Cold. It's cold, but I'm, I'm from Nunavut. So I said, if, if I don't wear a hat here, I'll be fine. Feeling the wind on your bare head is a weird feeling. <laughs> it's a weird and very distinct feeling. And um, when you're bald, I, like you, when you're walking around, especially on a cold winter day after a fresh haircut, you feel very sharp. Like you feel very like acutely there. And I think that that's what I needed at the time. Welcome to the Heart House Storyweavers podcast. My name is Sabrina and I will be your host for today's episode where I interview Masoma about her hair, her hair journey, and where she is now, where she's going to go with it. I hope you enjoy this short piece about her and that connection with her hair. One thing that I wanted to ask you about was your hair. Ah, because you have it shaved. Yeah. And we're talking about the black experience. And here's a very tricky thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a tricky thing for all women. You see it with women with cancer. You know, yeah. like anyone. You mm-hmm. lose your hair and it's a devastating experience. Mm-hmm. A lot of our femininities in that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's more troubling. Not tr- It's more difficult for black women because a lot of us just don't have hair that wants to cooperate <laughs> to that standard. Like, it just mm-hmm. doesn't grow down. It doesn't mm-hmm. want to be manipulated. It mm-hmm. doesn't, you know. So, what is your, what's your choice? Yeah. So, actually, my hair, this is a this is a long story, but whatever, we'll start, we'll start it. Basically, I, I was going through a time, like, it was just a weird time. I will say before, like, before, uh, and still, at any point in my life, I was, like, very, um... I, I care about the way I present, or at least I did at a time in my life. I cared about looking really good, and I used to, like, like my hair took, like, probably years of my life. Like, if you could add all that time, like, a solid year of my life. And I'm only 20, so, like, that's actually a significant amount of time in the day. Um, uh, so, it, and it was, like, it was a major thing for me. It was, like anybody, um, or any woman, I guess, you really care about your hair. However, I... I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see it as, um, something that affirmed or that was necessary for my femininity. I really saw it as something like, no matter at what age I was, I was acutely aware that I was doing my hair to fit into something, you know, like I wasn't like, oh, this is making me more of a woman. Like I was very much like, I need to do this, uh, to validate myself in the space I'm about to enter. Um... But anyway, tangential to that and like the awkwardness of growing up, I um, started going through this time in life and everything was just real, real bad and real chaotic. And um, I was staying with a friend and the whole family was gone. And then one day I was like, I just got into the mirror and I started cutting. And it looked awful. It was hideous. And it was just like this full tilt girl interrupted moment. Um, but I just started cutting it. I, di- I didn't even like consciously make the just, dis- I like, it's just. I was in a state of mind, really. I was in a state. But I just started cutting. I started with my bangs, so there's no going back. I just kept going and going and going and going. Um, 
and uh, then I was bald and it was like all patchy and then I just like threw all the hair away and then sat on the couch and waited for everyone to return and then like uh, I was like hey uncle because it was I was staying with my cousin and I was like hey uncle Ben can you like cut my hair and he's like yeah after and then we went to a movie I saw two guys I had a crush on uh, with patchy bald hair and I was like great awesome love it <laughs> and and um, then I went home and cut my hair and after that like everyone's like oh like are you gonna go back and I was like yeah we'll see and it's been like I was like 15 so it's been like five years now and really uh for me what it represented to cut my hair was like at that moment and after a, a bunch of events had happened in my life I had realized man the world is something else than what it is when you're a child I saw the world for obviously not what it really is I'm just 20 I don't think I can see the world for what it is but it was a major shift between the the way a child can see the world and the way something that's not a child can see the world. And um, when I cut my hair, when people ask me, like, oh, will you ever grow it back? Like, I can't, you know? Like, unless some turn of events happen, like, I don't think you can ever unsee, you know, the world um, as you do after you progress out of childhood. Um, I just kind of, I just wanted to emancipate myself from the stress and I wanted more time in my day and mostly I just wanted clarity like I wanted to know myself I, I feel like I can't and I think it's also like a sensory thing like when I'm outside because I don't wear hats like you'll see me in winter I don't do hats I like I tried because I was like I'm bald now I'll need it's a hat cold. it's cold but I'm I'm from Nunavut so I said if if I don't wear a hat here I'll be fine and then so like I think when you're bald, bald, you're always attuned, even in a sensory way. Like, feeling the wind on your bare head is a weird feeling. <laughs> it's a weird and very distinct feeling. And um, I think one of the things I say when I'm walking with people is, like, when you're bald, I, like, when you're walking around, especially on a cold winter day after a fresh haircut, you feel very sharp. Like, you feel very, like, acutely there. And I think that that's what I needed at the time that I cut my hair. I was very... And continue to need. I was very like all over the place. I was very chaotic. Um, and upon cutting my hair, I had this new sense, this new sensation that I had never had before. And that was like, it, you know, it's your, it's your head. It's very um, it's, uh, salient. And I think it just gives you clarity and confidence and you become very aware of yourself. and necessarily accepting of yourself and this is not to say that it's been like sunshine and roses since then but i don't know it's just a mark of having grown up for me like i can't i can't like i can't imagine myself with hair because i am like it's just not who i am it's who i was you know but also i've been thinking a lot about like hair in terms of my gender and like i uh I was, I've, I've been thinking about the fact that for many women, like being completely bald all day would be like hella weird. <laughs> and I definitely uh, can see how and why. Cause like, I don't know. I think when you're bald, you have to, f it's, it's a physical manifestation of like inwardly, like looking at yourself completely. Like you can't do, like if there's anything going on with yourself inside or outside, if you have nothing to cover it up, nothing to play with when you don't know where to put your hands, nothing to distract you to when you like should be facing this other thing, nothing to like d 
discuss with a friend before you go out, like, you know, the, like, great conversation, you have, like, should I curl it or should I straighten it? <laughs> um, but when you don't have that thing, um, you, all you have is you. And I think for me, one of the things that I, I wouldn't, or maybe I would say it, I think cutting my hair off is an extremely, like, feminist and an many ways rebellious acts because I think women are told not and taught not to be able to face themselves completely um, in order to allow other people to tell them what they are or what they're not and when you tell when you force yourself to do the work of knowing yourself completely inside and out and being unable to hide from yourself and having to grow into that and like grow into that strength and that confidence um, then no like nothing can fuck with you like no one can tell you you're this you're that you want this you want that because you're like no I don't I'm fully aware of what I am and what I want and especially as a black woman like the world is constantly trying to tell you that you deserve less than and that you are less than or that you're something this way or that way and um for me like being bald like and being very tall I feel like a very physically imposing woman um I, I like that because it, I feel like it's a physical manifestation of what I am on the inside, which is um, someone who's unmovable. Like, unless I want to move, I'm not going to move. Like, I was thinking about this this morning. I was like, would I recommend to, like, anyone else, let alone everyone else, to cut their hair? Like, if you're... I was thinking mostly in the framework of a woman. And my answer would be, yeah. I think that it's something that every woman should do once because it's fucking scary. <laughs> but it's also... Uh, I think, at least for me, a, a very necessary catalyst. And I think women only speak about their hair as more and more with more and more attachment as they grow older. So I think, like, you gotta do it. You gotta do it, like, because you're only it's go, it's only going to mean more and become a part of you that is more attached um, and harder to grow out of as you wait. Um, so yeah, I think. If that answers the question. No, it does. Yeah. Thanks again for tuning in to that episode of the Heart House Story Weavers podcast. Again, I am Sabrina and I was hosting the episode with my coworker Masoma where we talked about her hair. Stay tuned for a little excerpt, a little additional audio content before we wrap up the piece. Can I ask you something? Yeah. Do you know a Yes, I do. She's my... Yeah. yeah. You said you're from Nineveh. Now yeah. Like, oh, I know Yeah, you. that I've has to be one black girl from Nineveh. <laughs> you're like, wait, that can't... There can't be another. <laughs> I've met you before. Oh. I know about you. No, like, you like, 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 has told me okay. about you. Okay, okay. Because we're doing this thing for Frosh. And yeah. The person was like, step forward if you know someone from Nineveh. And she said, I was like, who the... <laughs> you're like you're lying. Oh, my friend, she's from She wasn't lying. Yeah, no, I'm sitting right here in the flesh. Like, it's so funny. Like when people are like, "Oh, where are you from?" and I say none of it. Like the flabbergast. Like they're like, like there's this moment where there's it's not surprise. It's not 
confusion it's like purely like does not compute like they can see like you can see them like looking at me and they're like no no and they're like there's this moment when because no one probably like you don't use the word no no in regular normal conversation in southern ontario so then there's this moment of pure like oh where is that again and they're like oh and they're like wait <laughs> and they look at me again and like as if to confirm they're like no she is of african descent and they they go into this place in their mind where they're just fully trying to like they're like okay my concept of Nunavut, the concept of black people, and like they're trying so hard, <laughs> and then they just can't. And I love it because I'm sitting there in front of them every time witnessing this happen, and I'm like, I know it's crazy, right? And I, and it's kind of funny. I always, sometimes I want to ask, like, but you probably like if you really thought about it, you assumed that there was like, like if someone asked you, are there black people in Nunavut? You like you'd have to say like, there's at least one. There's black people everywhere, right? So. <laughs> I was like, so you know, like, if you had to imagine it, it's not impossible. You just never thought about it before. Um, but that's that's all tangential. But yeah, I'm like really excited for it to get cold. Our final guest will discuss their experience with finding community at the University of Toronto, and they will provide some advice for finding community in your own life as well. Uh, so my name's Coco Lee. I am a, a U of T alumna. I graduated last year, but I did my undergrad and my first master's and my second master's here. And I've been at Hart House since the third year of my undergrad, so a little while. Uh, before I graduated, I was on the theater committee and I did a lot of work with Hart House Theater and the U of T Drama Coalition, which sort of lives in Hart House Theater. But now um, I'm on the senior members committee. I think that the reason that I'm thinking about this in particular is because mm -hmm. mental health has been really top of mind uh, for students in the last like week or so. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it has been a growing subject of conversation at U of T since I started here, which I think is almost 10 years ago now, which is a little scary to say, but like it has the, the need for people to look after their mental health has been a growing conversation in society for a while. And the recognition that U of T can be a really isolating and alienating place for a lot of people has been, I think, coming to the forefront more and more. Um, and like, many people feel like excluded from things at U of T or isolated from others when they are at U of T. Um, but that really wasn't my experience at all. And I had been thinking a lot when I was an undergrad that that was about like my choices to get involved, I think. But I think a lot of it more is about you get lucky if you get involved in a place that finds space for you. You get lucky to find a way to get involved where you feel as though there is a place for you. And not just that there's a place for you, but you are important in the place that you're in. And that doesn't mean necessarily that you're like running the show all the time or that you're in the spotlight. It just means that like your contributions do contribute to the moving forward of the place that you're involved in. So like I, as a part of the mental health conversation, I feel like being involved in student leadership or like just like student activity stuff, which for me was mostly like student theater work was so crucial to me never ever feeling like I didn't matter to this institution. Even though I know that on a numbers scale, like U of T is a huge place and I am one, I am, I'm an income unit or whatever you call me, like I never felt as though the people around me wouldn't notice if I were gone. And that even though like my own journey with mental health was one of like, you know, conquering anxiety and like learning about, learning about different mental health stuff and, and figuring out who I was as a person, like even though I had difficult times, I always felt as though there were a community of people who 
to whom I was important and whom I could lean on and who would understand if I needed a break or who would, you know, who I could talk to or who valued what I did in the world. And I feel like that's such an antidote to, to isolation and that's such an antidote to exclusion that, that there, are, there are more people who become your safety net, even if you, like, don't go into that with that expectation. Like, I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to find a safety net. I was like, oh, I'm just going to do stuff that I like. And then when other stuff in my life got hard, I still had this, this safety net that had become a safety net that it wasn't already. So, I don't know. I think, though it is not one particular story for me, I think it's just a, a feeling that I have that even though a lot of people talk about feeling isolated at U of T, the shared goals that I had with the people who were doing the stuff that I was also doing, like at Hard House, made it so that the last, I never felt so, so alone that I couldn't tell somebody about something. I think it's hard to, it's hard to, I really don't want to sound like telling you like, oh, if you're, if you're depressed, just like go outside. Cause it's not that easy, right? It's not just, it's never a just do X, Y, Z, but I count myself really lucky to have had a bunch of people around me who cared about the same stuff I did that I would have had a safety net when I needed one. So I started in my, I started doing theater stuff in my first year with Victoria College. I was really lucky that I had everybody that I loved at Vic and then I sort of brought a lot from Vic and started working at Hard House in third year. And by working at, I mean like doing student theater stuff with Hard House. So like these were, these were the Hard House theater staff who were so incredible as staff members, not in doing stuff for us, but they were wonderful in getting to know us as humans well enough to see opportunities and go, hey, I think you might really enjoy doing that. And like, or here's this really cool thing. Uh, do you want to give it a shot? Like Jillian, who still works in Hard House Theater, is like, she was so incredible for that. She And she still does that with all the students that I see her getting to know. She like finds a way for people to feel as though their contributions do matter. And they do. Uh, so yeah, the, heart, the staff made that happen. And then the students, seeing the incredible art that the students make, like on top of their studenty stuff like we have students who are studying all kinds of things not just theater students who are doing like really incredible work and just feeling like oh I get to be a part of this thing that is so powerful to so many people and is still not even someone's main thing the first thing that I got involved in was called the Bob Evic and it's like a sketch comedy thing uh, and I auditioned for it and I think I did a really bad job at the audition but they had a policy where it was a requirement that you include a certain number of first years uh, and I was a first year and I got included and I felt as though like I don't like I, I did end up doing the Bob for a number of years and I really loved it and it was really important to me but like I don't think if I don't think that I would have gotten that opportunity if it hadn't been for that policy that said like hey we need to make sure we include people and like or we need to make sure that there are space for people who wouldn't otherwise have access to that space and I think that for me like as a really privileged person in a lot of ways being like white and straight passing and like a lot of things, able-bodied, like, you don't, it's so important that there be policies and intention in institutions to make spaces for people who have been marginalized, because you do not realize how much you are excluding people just by your, like, un unacknowledged biases. So, my, the, like, the half part is an advice to institutions that those policies really do do stuff if you use them as a way to like critically look at how you include people and make sure that you are being not exclusionary unintentionally with your policies. So that's thing number 0.5. And then the rest, um, that the journey was people inviting me out and me saying yes even when I was scared. And so it, 
and that meant inviting out to rehearsals, inviting out to auditions and stuff. That meant like checking my friggin' emails. I think people miss so many opportunities because they get an email that they're like, ah, I didn't look at that. And then, so anyway, answer your emails is my advice. Do institute policies that create radical change in terms of looking at who's not being invited to your table. Uh, And uh, trust it when people say nice things about you because they usually mean it. This upcoming piece is a longer one, but it is full of both narrative and advice. Follow along as our guest takes us from Indonesia to their move to Canada and listen in as they share advice about connecting with others and optimal study habits. Kyle Mendoza, age 21, studying computer science. Uh, I have currently been here for seven years. Seven years and... In Canada or at U of T? In Canada. I came from Indonesia before I came to Canada. It's a country, an Icelandic country in the Asian continent. It was a very sheltered life, to be honest. Uh, my family was fortunate enough to be part of a very wealthy company. So they took care of most of our uh, extenuating expenses, including school. So I got to go to the best school in the country. And uh, overall, it was just a very luxurious lifestyle, I'd say. Most vivid memory is probably Honestly, just going to going on school trips to just different parts of the country, and because we're an island, that means flying out to Bali or all all the other Indonesian countries, and just being able to have like a lot of fun with friends and uh, have it be just school, uh, still be a school trip, but it's it just feels more than that. During one of our uh, outside trips, uh, on our way back, there was actually a volcano that exploded or erupted. while we were on the plane back, so the plane actually had to divert to another, uh, to, to not some, somewhere that wasn't Jakarta, where I was living at the time, and we essentially sp- spent three to four days uh, stuck there. Although I feel like me and my friends didn't complain because that meant we were missing school for free. Uh, I just was hoping that I wouldn't die uh, in case that we did fly into a uh, ash cloud and it clogged the engines. But then after it was safe, I was like, all right, sweet, I get to miss school. Honestly, uh, I've always wanted to go to a post-secondary education in North America, whether that be U.S. or Canada. And uh, as good as my school was uh, in Indonesia, because they offered IB and AP, uh, my parents thought it would be easier and more affordable for me to move to Canada for high school and then apply to university as a Canadian graduate so that they wouldn't have to pay any international fees or, uh, and it wouldn't be hard for me to immediately adjust to Canadian lifestyle like right when university starting, which is in hindsight a very good idea. Uh, one of my close friends in Indonesia is actually the son of the Canadian ambassador to Indonesia and his, his dad and my parents started talking and they started essentially talking up Canada and how, good, how great it was compared to the States. And they actually helped my parents just, uh, get a PR here so we kind of had a really good foot in the door when we we came here. We didn't have to go through any of the typical like immigrant struggles because we had very pretty good connections. NPR's permanent residency. Yes. Yeah. So how did you feel being told that you were coming to Canada while you were still in Indonesia? Um, honestly, I was pretty blindsided because they essentially told me, like out of the blue, they didn't really give me a warning. Because I remember we we came to Canada in 2008, so like four years before we actually fully moved here. And I just thought that was a vacation, but apparently there was also <laughs> my parents scouting out houses, potential houses to buy. Uh, so 
the way that my parents, my mom actually dropped it to me was, uh, I guess, as smooth as you could put it. But I still kind of freaked out because she kind of was like, "Hey, do you remember when we went to Canada uh, back in uh, back in two years ago?" I'm like, "Yeah." I'm like, "How would you feel if we moved there permanently?" I'm like, "What?" I kind of I kind of got hit with it out of nowhere, but I feel like I had to just adjust and like trust that my parents knew what they were doing. As someone who's a who's who's a very very big foodie, I I honestly still hold to the fact that I've not tasted anything better than like Indonesian food and not just like a particular food. Like all all the cuisine there to me just has a better taste for my palate. Like don't get me wrong, Canadian food is really good. It's just I've never. It's never given me the same joy that I've had uh, with the food there, and also like I've I left a whole bunch of family and friends there too, and I essentially had to start over in Canada. First couple of months was actually not too bad because it was summer vacation, so I actually didn't really have to worry about school for a while. I kind of got to relax for a bit and just, I guess, take in the Canadian, uh, the Canadian lifestyle for for a little bit without stressing over school, and. Uh, First thing I noticed, the air was a lot cleaner, which I really appreciated. <clears throat> but yeah, no, the first couple of weeks was actually not too bad, as, aside from a major amount of jet lag and having to adjust to the time zone. It was it was pretty good, but I think we, me, my, me and my mom, because my dad ended up coming a little bit later. Me and my mom experienced our first like downward like slope in terms of our like our mentality here was when school started, and I really felt displaced like I really didn't feel like I could connect with this with these kids because a I, I was coming in and I was coming in in grade 10 where pretty much everyone had their established friend group either through grade 9 or even coming here coming to the high school from elementary so I was kind of stuck without a without a way to kind of break into these already established friend groups so I, I feel that was definitely uh, one of the more tough uh, one of the more tough experiences uh, and think in fact the first during the first week of school uh, I, I always thought that this, this just happened in movies, but uh, like I think yeah, during the first week of school, I actually just ate lunch by myself in like the back alley of the school or just whatever wherever I could find it, some uh, peace and quiet, just because I didn't really have anyone to eat with at the time. <coughs> but um, I feel like that cha definitely changed pretty quickly as soon as people, I guess, started talking, just st started talking to me. And it's really funny because a lot of my... One of a lot of my best friends now from high school, they tell me that the reason they didn't really talk to me in the first week is that they didn't know I spoke English, which is fair, I guess. I didn't really talk too much during that time, but I just find it funny that that was just the one reason why they did, were pretty hesitant to talk to me. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it, got, it got a lot better really quickly, and I just ended up making a whole bunch of great friends. And uh, yeah, no, the first, uh, after that, initial two week or two weeks of just I really wanted to just go back home I kind of I guess acclimated and I adjusted to the lifestyle and it was uh it was pretty smooth sailing from at that from that point on when I when I look back it's just I remember I introduced myself as coming from Indonesia um and coming from I guess a really far away country in Asia you know I guess even here in university when I'm uh, introduced or when I meet people international students you know, I'm not gonna lie. I, I sometimes have a preconceived assumption, like, oh, maybe their English isn't the best. You know, it's not assumption that I like to make a lot, but it's just something unconscious that sometimes happens. And also, I find myself also very like pleasantly surprised or impressed when they're like English is flawless. So seeing that and seeing how I react to to international students here, kind of give gave me an insight of, oh, okay, so this is how they saw me back in grade ten.
Um, on, for for the domestic side, honestly, uh, if they seem to be uh, alone and like again, you kind of have to read. Uh, do your own kind of reading if they want to be left alone but if they just seem to be alone out of circumstance definitely just come up to go up to them and invite them into your group and invite them into your circle of friends because uh, I cannot tell you how much it meant to me that there was that one friend that kind of took a chance and reached out to me and uh, actually talked to me and had a conversation with me and realized hey this guy is not that different from me because even though he came from halfway across the world and he and he kind of introduced me to to my first essentially circle of friends and for that from there it just expanded so if you're able to be that one person who kind of breaks that international student or someone who's uh, maybe not uh, maybe hangs out alone a lot if you're if you can be the person to to kind of break that isolation and introduce him to a bunch of friends that I can tell you that it'll, they'll really stick with that person and he'll really appreciate and he'll just be eternally grateful for that. Um, and as the international student, honestly, it's much easier said than done. And I realize that now, but just don't be afraid to, to kind of go out there and just give people your name, give people like try to ice break with a bunch of, with a, a bunch of random people and like, you would never know how uh, how close you and a, a stranger could be if you never try to make that connection. Um, and it's and I feel it's really I feel like it's really important that even if maybe as an international student your English isn't that strong, still go up to them um, and you know people will be willing to help you out. And uh, I feel like working on the language is a lot easier when you have people supporting you instead of just trying to do it alone. Well, to be honest, I don't really think uh, I felt like a minority in in my high school, particularly because in Indonesia, I did go to international school. So mm -hmm. it was already, I was already in a place where I was surrounded by people that weren't the same uh, ethnicity as me. And in fact, I kind of, I interacted with people from all kinds of ethnicities, all kind of uh nationality so when i came here it wasn't uh, like barring the initial like hesitancy to, to, to i guess approach new people once i did once i was able to start talking to them it wasn't hard for me to kind of uh, adapt to uh, their way of i guess their way of their way of life and um, how they talked about things because i already i've already been i already was exposed to that in indonesia i think that point was definitely uh when one of my best friends and who's actually still my best friend to this day kind of uh, snapped at me uh, one day because I was being very pretentious and I was being very arrogant because that's essentially uh, that's essentially the attitude that most of my most me and my other friends had at in, in Indonesia because when we were international school it was all about you know because it was essentially a school full of rich kids it was it was all about what you had and a materialistic value. And if not that, how smart you were, how talented you were. So it was kind of always a one-upping contest of how good you were. And then I guess moving here, it's it, at that point, it hit me that, you know, people here don't really get, like, care how how good you are, how, uh, how much above them you are, especially if you tell them about it. You know, there people here are a lot more concerned of, you know, the soft, emo the soft emotional skills of like, yeah, empathy, compassion, um, not too much like I get I shouldn't say ambition is important but it definitely isn't the first priority uh, here compared to Indonesia
Um, well, U of T, it's, it's, it's definitely a different environment from high school. It's for sure a lot harder. Uh, you know, high school kind of flew by as a really fun time for me. And honestly, a lot of people hated their high school. I, I had a really great time because A, I think I was surrounded by a lot of good people and a lot of good friends. And B, I didn't really have to worry about uh, academics because at the time it was very easy for me. And you know, I did I did put in the work, but it wasn't. I was never stressed about getting good grades. In university, there definitely is a very there's definitely truth to the saying that you need a very good balance between your academics and your social life, because you know, getting one too much of one and less of another is always going to be detrimental, no matter which one. If you do. You focus too much on your grades and that can lead to a whole slew of uh, mental breakdowns and just you know very sad nights when you're when you're just at the brink of your at the at the limit of your uh thinking capacity and if you have too much social then your grades will suffer and you know that's never that's never a good that's never a good thing um in terms of uh i guess campus life and uh, university life it's a lot more independent in high school you know no one really forces you to go to class no one no one takes down if you attendance if you go to class or not so it's really on you to do it and you know act and it's also the first time i've learned where class or lecture isn't the best way to learn for everybody sometimes people learn better when just through looking through their notes or through their textbook and uh it's really kind of opened my eyes to the different ways of learning and um kind of helped me also discover my best way of learning I feel when it comes to learning, there's two main audit, main paths of learning that you can kind of go into specifics later, but it's auditory auditory learning and visual learning. So auditory learning, it really helps if like if you if you're really good with auditory learning, that means that you take in information better when you hear it rather than when you see it. And definitely lectures is really good for you because it's all the prof essentially teaches you and you're able to absorb that knowledge. And if you're more of a visual learner, honestly, you know. If you if you can if you have no good reason to not attend lectures, still attend lectures. But I still I do think that reading the lecture slides and reading the course notes would be more beneficial because you've taken information better by actually having the information in front of you and you can go at it at your own pace. I think my greatest adversity is definitely uh, during third year where uh, my academics definitely suffered and um, it was actually just a generally a pretty tough time overall for me because you know family was going through some troubles themselves um, and like it was it was less of a, a huge meltdown more than it was a bunch of melt, a bunch of small meltdowns unfortunately all happening at the same time that built up to a pretty pretty bad situation and um, yeah it was just not a good environment at home and I didn't really have the motivation to study that much and you know it effect, definitely affected my, uh, my, my grades and uh, you know, at the same time, it was yeah, it, it was definitely one of the times where I look back and it was really it was really bad. But at the same time, it definitely helped, I guess, build the build my own character. And you know, through adversity, if it doesn't, yeah, it's, it harks back to the old saying: if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. Um, you know, and also it, it kind of all depended on how I took that adversity. I could have easily just gone through that experience and just gave it up but you know because of my my family who actually ended up you know we kind of uh fixed our own issues and also 
uh, my very supportive friends, you know, they kind of encouraged me to, you know, not not give it up. You know, it's hard right now, but if you just keep grinding, you'll you'll uh, you'll eventually break even. You'll you'll eventually just be okay. So I think that was definitely a big big turning point in me, just kind of fighting through what I felt myself to be like a very a, a learning block in which I didn't really feel like. A, I didn't really feel like I had, I really was interested too much in my program, and B, I just didn't feel the motivation to study that hard. So getting through that was definitely um, a big accomplishment for me. And you know, breaking down that wall, it's it it helped. It help it helps me now because if I ever feel myself slipping back into old habits, you kind of I kind of know what to do to uh, remedy that. So yeah. um, honestly, two years from now, I had seen myself. Hopefully, you know, working some sort of uh, IT job or other computer science related job after I finish my degree, uh, but I kind of, I kind of uh, said it to myself and I said it to my family too, where you know, as much as good as CompSci is and how, as as employable as it is, it just doesn't really spark my passion uh, as much as I thought it would. So you know, I I'd want to, I'd want to finish this program now since I'm really close to finishing it. You know, get a get get a good stable job, and then just, I guess, branch out from there and try to, I guess, find something they can really be passionate about. And for what that future me would say to me, I definitely think he would tell me to just, you know, keep keep grinding it out. You know, you might not be having fun right now, and you might be like really like wanting to just kill this program. Like you just don't you just don't really like this program, but you know. Uh, you need a strong foundation and this can be your strong foundation as annoying as it may be uh it can be your it can be your foundation to go on to bigger and better things and uh you know just keep your head keep your head up and just keep trudging through it thank you so much to all of the featured guests for sitting down and having these conversations with me so many years ago a special thank you to Day, Brayden, and the rest of the Heart House student podcast team for your help in producing the show. Our intro-outro music was produced by Dan Driscoll. And, as always, a huge thank you to you, our amazing listeners. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram at Heart House Stories and on Twitter at HH Podcasting. We also archive all of our episodes on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash Stories. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back next week with The West Meeting Room.